There we go. Okay. Okay. Sweet. Well, um, I'm really glad to be here from the north shore of Long Island. I send you my greetings. It's green there. It's still not green here. But it's coming. It's coming. So um, it's a privilege to be here. So I want you to open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 to 11 is what we're going to talk about today. I'm actually going to read from Romans chapter 8, 7 to 11. So I'm going to start there first to kind of set the stage. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 to 11. I'm going to start in verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. If you don't have your Bibles in front of you, it's up there on the screen, right there. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, but if Christ is in you, I want to harp on that for a second, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The Word of the Lord. Now, I don't, I don't watch a lot of television, but uh, a number of months ago, a friend of mine put me on to a unique cable series called Foil's War. Foil's War. And it ran from 2002 to 2015, roughly three to four shows a year. So it wasn't your typical television show. It was more like a a small movie, you know, three times a year. And it's set in the United Kingdom from roughly April of 1940 through the middle of 1947. Uh, It's a British production. And what it does is it attempts to tell the story of, of World War II life during the war at home in the U.K., through the eyes of this police officer named Christopher Foyle and those who work with him. And uh, Foyle uh, is, uh, is an Oxford, Christopher Foyle is an Oxford uh, grad. He is a World War I vet, loves to fish, loves to golf. His son is in the RAF, and he has a Sergeant Milner working with him. Sergeant Milner was uh, injured in uh, the early part of World War II, lost a leg in the, Norm, uh, uh, the Norway campaign. And he also has a young woman named Samantha, whose dad is a vicar in a, in a city not too far from them. And, the, and through the eyes of these three characters, they describe, you know, what it, it, what it was like to live in the, war, in the war years in the UK. So it's one of those whodunit things, you know. It's about 90 minutes, uh, and somebody's murdered and solved in 90 minutes, so it works just fine with me. And uh, in, in episode number three, Officer Milner is sent to live in someone's house to offer security. Uh, that man was a judge. There had been threats on his life. So uh, Officer Milner went there and literally took up residence in his home. And he's assigned to the house. And while he's there, he listens to their concerns. He comforts them in their fear. He challenges them sometimes uh, when they you know, get out of line. And as long as Officer Milner is in the home... They're secure. Now, I'm not going to tell you the end of the story, but suffice to say, when Officer Milner leaves, that's when the murder happens. Check it out, okay? Check it out. 
Now, you're in a sermon series now called Absolute Security, and it's taken from Romans chapter 8. And the point of the series is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we can have assurance of our salvation. We have assurance of our salvation. And with that assurance comes a sense of security. That is the recognition that God has our best interest in mind regardless of our life circumstances. We're not alone. And all of that is connected to the work of Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit in our lives that guarantees our life and thus gives us this assurance. So today, we're going to look at the role of the indwelling spirit in our lives and how it shows us that we're, you know, to be sure of our salvation. Now, Romans chapter 8, the whole thing is about life in the spirit because the spirit does something for us that we can't do for ourselves, and that is actually overcome our sin. So in this text, there are a couple of things we need to keep in mind about the indwelling spirit. And here's the first one. Number one, in the flesh we die. If you've got some notes there, you can just fill that in. In the flesh we die. Now what Paul is saying is, what, what Paul is doing is he's helping us understand the role of the spirit in our lives. And to do that, the first thing he has to talk about is what the Bible calls the flesh. And he's saying that there are two realms, two kingdoms, so to speak, two control centers in, in, you know, in human life, okay? You either have the spirit, and you're in the spirit, or you have the flesh, and you're in the flesh. And when it comes to the spirit, you either have him or you don't. There's no in-between. Sergeant Milner is either in your home, or he's not. And Paul wants us to understand that those in the flesh are not, uh, those uh, in the flesh are controlled by the flesh. You know, it's what we might call the human nature. It's our natural inclinations apart from God. It's, it's opposed to God. It can't please God. And it's easily recognizable even by those who aren't Christians. Luke Ferry is a professor of philosophy at the University of Paris. Wrote a book entitled, A Brief History of Thought. Now, he's not a Christian, but speaking about the natural inclination of humankind, he notes, and this is, this is a quote, most of the time, men find themselves having to oppose the natural order to arrive at any notion of good. And this is as much the case within ourselves as around us. If I listen to my inner nature, it is an uninterrupted and insistent babble of egotism that speaks urging me to follow my private interests to the detriment of others. Now, do you see what he's saying? He's saying that there's something in us opposite the spirit that is unbelievably narcissistic. In all of us. There's something in us that is self-centered and self-absorbed. It's life turned inward. It's the flesh. And if you stop long enough to think about it, it's scary. And its ultimate influence remains on us even after we become a Christian. Life in the flesh. In the flesh we die. So in the flesh there's death. But Paul says in the spirit there's life. These two realms, okay? And the spirit, in the realm of the spirit, influences how we think. And the realm of the spirit governs how we live. 
And the Spirit gives us security. And the Spirit gives us guidance. And the Spirit gives us insight and hope in the midst of suffering. And in the long run, all things will turn out for our good. So life in the flesh, life in the Spirit, the two are in opposition to one another. Now, if you do not have any interest in the things of the Spirit, it's quite possible you're in the flesh. And Paul's trying to drive this home when he's talking about our assurance by having the indwelling Holy Spirit. And this idea of life in the Spirit is central to all that it means to be Christian. It tells us that Christianity is not, it's an experiential religion. It's not simply following a list of rules. It's not your first communion. It's not your baptism. It's not showing up to a church worship service like this. It's God literally taking up some sort of residence in you and making your life his home. So Paul says if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. So while we may be physically alive, yet we're spiritually dead with all its disastrous consequences. In the flesh, we die. And he's driving this home before he unpacks what it means to be infilled or indwelled by the Spirit. Now, the practical implications of this truth are absolutely stunning. And it's not my goal to go into all of it today, but this has to do with how we view or think of ourselves. In the United States, we have a very high view of ourselves. We, have, we view ourselves as having unlimited potential. We have a high view of ourselves, we have a low view of God, and frankly, we have a twisted view of sin. And what Paul is telling us here is that real life begins when we have a realistic view of ourselves, a realistic view of God, and a realistic view of human nature. And I'm not talking about being self-loathing here. I'm talking about an honest appraisal of our own broken condition. In the flesh we die. There's a fascinating article in the Atlantic, July, August 2011, by a woman named Lori Gottlieb. And the article is entitled this, How to Land Your Kid in Therapy. How to Land Your Kid in Therapy, August 2011, uh, The Atlantic. And the way to do it, according to uh, Gottlieb, is to protect your child from anything that tells them that they are less than amazing. And her point, or the implication, is that this whole self-esteem thing is a miserable failure because of the reality of the flesh in us and its work is ignored. Because the reality is, and I want to drive this home here as we consider assurance, the reality is, I don't have your best interest in mind. I have my best interest in mind. And more often than not, that's the way most of us operate. And we function that way. So David Zoll in his book, Low Anthropology, puts it like this. How we view human nature has a tremendous bearing on how we experience the world and ourselves. He goes on to say that a high anthropology breeds perfectionism, anxiety, and burnout in our lives. A sense that we're alone and that everyone has a leg up on us. In contrast, a low anthropology forges sympathy, clarity, and reconciliation because we recognize that we're finite and we're limited. You see, if, I, if, 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 if my life is built around me, I have no security. Why? Because it's built around me. In the flesh, we die. Now, Paul spends all kinds of time setting that up. In the flesh, there's death. But in verses 10 through 11, 
he tells us the exact opposite of tr is true of the believer. Life in the spirit is life. Life in the flesh is death. If you're in the flesh, you die. If you're in the spirit, you live. And in verses 10 and 11, he unpacks this through, through two conditional clauses. In the spirit, you live. In fact, we have life now. Now, here, here's why. If you're a Christian, God's Holy Spirit literally lives in you. Verses 9 and 11. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God literally has come and taken up residence in your life. Theologians call it the indwelling Spirit. And this lines up with the promise that Jesus made in John 14, verse 15 and 17, where he said, I will not leave you alone. I'll send you a helper, and he will be with you, and he will be in you. It was promised in the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, verse 28, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27. In fact, Paul says, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3, 16. And the term used to describe this living arrangement, in the spirit we live, in the flesh we die, in the spirit we live, and in that we can have confidence and assurance, the term he used to describe this living arrangement is housed, bivouacked. See, there, there is, the God's spirit literally moves into your life. Your life is his address. And he's not just hanging out. And there's nearness, and there's familiarity, and there's proximity. And this is so intimate that the entire Trinity has actually moved into your life like a family, together. So for example, which is why I like the fact that Rich used the Trinity in his prayer today. So for example, in verse 9, first part, you have the Spirit of God. Check it out. Verse, the Spirit of God. And then speaking about the same thing, the second part of verse 9, the Spirit of Christ. First part of verse 10, uh, 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 Christ in you. And then the second part of verse 10, just the Spirit. And then, the, and then verse 11, the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. So quite literally, all the members of the Trinity, though distinguished from one another, actually dwell in you. And when that happens, there's not going to, there's not going to only be presence, but interaction and influence. And your life changes. And the Spirit, the reason the Spirit moves in like this, second part of verse 10, is because of the work of Christ on our life. Listen to this. Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is life because of righteousness. He's pointing to the work of Christ on the cross. That is, we get the Holy Spirit because we've turned from our sin and put our faith in Christ alone. So while that uh, sin principle in us is death, verse 10, middle of it, we still die, yet because of the work of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit, we begin to live now. So there's a spiritual dynamic at play. Jesus calls it the abundant life. It's spiritual in nature, practical in scope, and if you're a Christian, it's happening right now. And in that, there's security. Last fall, my daughter and her husband and three kids moved into our home for two months so they could remodel theirs. They live five minutes from us. 
And when they walked in the door, everything changed. First, we got to know them really well. I mean, we shared everything, almost, including the flu. And things began to change around our house. They began to influence us. We began to influence them. I, I travel a lot in my ministry. I got home one day, and the locks were changed. And the door handle, because he fixed the door, and the, and, the, and the locks were changed. And we came in, and my daughter had rearranged the whole kitchen. And, and you know, and uh, uh, she started cooking. And she started cleaning. And we didn't worry about locking up when we left. Why? Because they were our security system. In the spirit we live. And what Paul is telling us here is that when we become a follower of Jesus Christ, we get all the life-giving functionality of the Holy Spirit right now. And that begins when he's given the keys to the house of our lives. So, for example, the Spirit regenerates, Titus 3.5. That is, he gives us new life. The Spirit baptizes. That is, he places us in the body of Christ so that we have community. That's why we meet together and worship. 1 Corinthians 12.3. Uh, um, the Spirit advocates or intercedes on our behalf, like a lawyer. Romans 8.27. The Spirit seals our salvation, guarantees our salvation. 2 Corinthians 1.22. The Spirit illuminates or clarifies the truths of Scripture, scripture in our lives. 1 Corinthians 2.10 The Spirit guides is a moral and practical GPS without a phone. Galatians 5.18 The Spirit empowers for service and godly living. Galatians 5.17 The Spirit convicts us of our sin. John 16.8 The Spirit gives gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 the Spirit produces fruit in our lives now. Joy, peace, patience, goodness, self-control, among other things. Galatians 5, 22, 23. When the Spirit moves in, you begin to change. You see what I'm saying? And in that change, there is security. There is assurance. And in some regards, you know that the Spirit moves in because you have changed. Before Augustine came to faith in Christ, he had a different girl every night. He was a profligate guy. And as God began to convict him of his sin, he prayed, Oh Lord, give me purity, just not now. And that's kind of the way it is. We grow slowly and surely, okay? And yet Paul is telling us that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, our lives will change, and that life change, it's part of our assurance. In the spirit we live. Becky Pipper tells the story of her, in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, about a course that she was auditing at Harvard University. And she was listening to a case study about a young man who hated his mother but didn't know it. So the therapist helped him to see that he hated his mother. Okay, and then Pippa raised her hand and said, well, now that the therapist has helped him see that he hated his mother, how is the therapist going to help him forgive his mother? To which the, uh, the professor responded, well, that's not therapy. You're, you're asking a lot. We just help him to come to grips with his hate, but forgiving, that's not what we do. And so the people in the class began to get upset and raise their hands and, you know, ask questions. And finally, the professor said, wait, if you're looking for how to develop a forgiving heart, you're in the wrong department. Now, what he meant was this. 
Psychology is good. Science is good. And it can help change your behavior. But it's not going to change your heart. But the Spirit of God does. And that starts now. That change brings life. And with that change, you have assurance. In the flesh, there's death. In the Spirit, there's life. And that life starts now. So let me ask you a question. Are you living the Spirit-shaped life now? Are you responding to the Spirit's promptings to deal with your stuff? Or are you just blowing it off? Are we discovering our spiritual gifts? Or are we on cruise control in our faith? Are we letting the Spirit guide us? Or are we intent on setting the direction of our own life alone? Are we even interested in the spiritual part of our life? Because if the Spirit dwells in us, we will more than likely be that way. In the flesh, there's death, says Paul. But in the Spirit, there's life. And that indwelling Holy Spirit, that ongoing work of God in our lives provides us assurance and it provides us a sense of security. Life in the flesh is death. Life in the Spirit is life. But life in the Spirit means more than just life right now. It's the promise of life in the future. It's the hope of heaven through the resurrection. So in the Spirit we have life in the future. The resurrection life. Now what Paul is doing he describes the Spirit as the first fruits of, our, of the resurrection life, Romans 8.23. He's the deposit, the seal, the guarantee, the initial down payment of the glory which we are being ushered into as followers of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.22. And it's the Spirit, in verse 11 we see, who will do the resurrection, a re- resurrecting. Years ago, J.R. Tolkien wrote a fascinating, of, of uh, Lord of the Rings fame, wrote a fascinating little article called On Fairy Stories. And Tolkien, can, you can download it, on, on, uh, Google it, you can download it and read it, it's excellent. And Tolkien contends in this paper that there are these deep longings in human heart that only fantasy will take care of, uh, like fairy tales and science fiction and Marvel comic book characters and the like. And he says, all human beings have a fascination with the idea of escaping time or, or, or escaping death. And he notes that we want to live long enough to achieve our artistic and creative dreams and to find a love that, that perfectly heals. And in this article, Tolkien asks, why do we have these longings? Why is there this desire for life beyond life? And as a Christian, he would say, it's because we are not originally created by God to die. Death was not part of the original deal. As someone once said, there's something about death that breeds resurrection. It's built into the very fabric of the universe. Tim Keller, who's a mentor of mine, New Yorker, I, I, I've spent, my wife and I spent 27 years living in New York City. And so I was exposed to Dr. Keller and his ministry, Redeemer Presbyterian. Uh, He's currently uh, really on a death sentence with pancreatic cancer. And they interviewed him in the New York Times. He's a world-famous pastor. And he noted, you know, this hope of the resurrection. He said, essentially, that most readers, most of your readers, with any more than a third-grade education, would say that's just not true. It's not real. 
But deep down inside, Keller said, deep down inside, we all know that this is the way life ought to be. And in verse 11, Paul says, that's the way it actually is. And that changes everything. Christianity isn't just another religious experience or moral system. As Scott, Scott Sauls puts it, wherever Jesus says, resurrection happens all around him to people, places, and things. And with that resurrection presence, with the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence and the hope of the resurrection, we have assurance. We know where we're going. Eternal life. Albert Einstein, great physicist, uh, the 20th century, many years ago, was honored by Time magazine as the uh, 20th century man of the, of, uh, of, the, of the century. He was once traveling from Princeton University, going someplace, uh, and as he was traveling, the conductor, you know how it used to be, right? You have a paper ticket and everything. Now you just do it on a, te- on a phone, but you have a paper ticket, they clip it. So the conductor came up to him, and he started fishing in his pocket for a ticket, couldn't find it. Chest pocket, you know. Then he starts in his pants pocket, couldn't find it. Then he opened his briefcase, couldn't find it. Then he looked on the, the seat next to him, couldn't find it. Then the conductor said, Dr. Einstein, we all know who you are. We know you bought a ticket, no problem. To which Einstein had nodded appreciatively, and then the conductor went on. So he got to the end of the train, the conductor's clipping everybody's ticket, turns around, and there's Einstein on his hands and knees looking for the ticket under the seats. So the conductor goes back and says, Dr. Einstein, We all know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. And Einstein looked at him and said this, Young man, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. (laughs) He didn't know which stop to get off on. Now life in the Spirit is the promise that we know where we're going when we die. It's the great hope of the Christian faith. And with that comes assurance. And with that comes security. You see, that's Larry Hurtado wrote a series of books trying to discover or answer the question, why would anyone in the first three centuries become a Christian? His book was entitled Destroyer of the Gods. And he wrote a whole series of these books because everybody who came to Christ in the first three centuries was persecuted. And he's saying, what would... What would possess these people to actually follow this Jesus guy. You know what the answer was? The resurrection. That their life was more than just a blip on a radar screen. That changed everything. And what is the guarantee that this resurrection is true, that the Spirit truly indwells us? What's the guarantee that we have in history? It's the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Because on the cross, Jesus gave up his spirit so we could have the Holy Spirit. He was given over to death so we could have resurrection life. He came in the flesh through his work on the cross to transform our own. And his resurrection is the guarantee that we'll be resurrected to. And that promise is sealed through the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's why the indwelling Spirit is so important, because it witnesses to you within you that you, in fact, have that security. In this flesh, you die. In the Spirit, you live. 
but in the spirit. We also have life in the future, the resurrection life. N.T. Wright puts it like this. The resurrection body of Jesus, which at the moment is almost unimaginable to us in glory and power, will be the model of our own. And with that resurrection, we have hope. Now, what is God saying to you today? Let's pray. I want to invite the worship team to come up. Let's pray. Very quietly. What is the Spirit saying to you today? Kind Father, the truth of the indwelling Spirit it is, it is so profound, it affects every part of our lives. And Father, we confess that we have a very high view of ourselves as Americans, as people in the West. We have an exalted view of ourselves and a very low view of you. Father, we confess that, but we ask, Father, that you would drive home to us the reality that in the Spirit, it's in the Spirit we have life. I pray that you would change us from the inside out, do this for the sake of your great name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.